Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to continue to consider how aspects of the creation anticipated the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to get downright mythical with it. Don't worry, though. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis. So before we begin, let's pray together. Lord, you know what distracted hearts we have. We pray, Lord, that you would give us self-recollection. You know what hard, dead hearts we have. Oh, touch and awaken us. You know how we yet resist your word and our lower nature is reluctant to bow to your scepter. Therefore, O Lord, show forth your power, send your Holy Spirit on high to work among us, to make our hearts submissive and ourselves capable of living in true union with you. Our salvation, Lord God, you are our salvation. Let us yield totally to your grace. We pray these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to actually begin with a lengthy uh, quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that glorious Lutheran. If you ever want to know how to resist the government properly when they get out of hand, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is your man. He was a pastor in the Lutheran Church who attempted to assassinate Hitler, unfortunately failed. But he wrote a devotional on Advent, and in that devotional, he writes this, The lack of mystery in our modern life is our downfall and our poverty. A human life is worth as much as the respect it holds for the mystery. We retain the child in us to the extent that we honor the mystery. Therefore, children have open, wide-awake eyes because they know that they are surrounded by the mystery. They are not yet finished with this world. They still don't know how to struggle along and avoid the mystery as we grown-ups do. We destroy the mystery because we sense that, there, that here we reach the boundary of our being. Because we want to be Lord over everything and have it all at our disposal, and that's just what we cannot do with the mystery. Living without mystery means knowing nothing of the mystery of our own life, nothing of the mystery of another person, nothing of the mystery of the world itself. It means passing over our own hidden qualities and those of others and the world. It means remaining on the surface, taking the world seriously only to the extent that it can be calculated and exploited, and not going beyond the world of calculation and exploitation. Living without mystery means not seeing the crucial process of life at all and even denying them in their entirety. Now, what is the mystery that he's talking about? What is the mystery? Well, all of this is actually a comment on Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I know I told you to open to Genesis. Look at that little trick I pulled. The mystery that he is describing, this mystery that children understand and that adults avoid because we cannot control it, is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 through 3 that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now, the mystery at the heart of the cosmos, the mystery at, at the heart of God's plan for mankind and creation itself, the mystery is Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are familiar with the mystery, those of us who acknowledge that there is a mystery, we acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that he came into the world to save sinners like us, that he ascended, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, all of that we know. And so what's difficult for us sometimes, especially around Christmas time, when we're used to the, you know, there's no room for Jesus at the end, uh, the Romans want to tax people, we, there's so many elements of the story, that he went to shepherds, I recently was listening to 105.3, I don't usually do that, but they were, ta- they were talking on there about how it was the night shift, <laughs> the night shift that was out there with the sheep. And I thought, you know, they didn't have such a thing back then. I was like, I love how this guy is trying to yank a mystery where there's no mystery, right? It's not like he, the day shift people were too good, and so he goes out to the pasture, and he starts talking to the night shift. That's not how it worked. Because if you were with the sheep during the day, you were also the same person who was with them at night because they were your sheep. And, and in preparation, I, I don't think my brother on the radio could have prepped me better for this. Because look how he's yearning for mystery. He's lear- yearning for depth. He's yearning for more purpose, more meaning, more magic out of this whole beautiful thing we call Christmas. And, and, and what I find, right, is that the desire is good. The answer is terrible, right? It is so anti-historical and anti-any conception of the context. And so today, what I would like to do, for those of you who, have, who are familiar with this mystery, is, is try again to, to, to weave a spell I know I'm using a lot of magic language. There's a purpose. But C.S. Lewis, in one of his sermons, said, sometimes the purpose of spells is to break enchantments as much to make enchantments. And what he was talking about was preaching in such a way as to free his listeners' minds from their modern traps, from their modern obsessions, from their modern way of thinking, and and, and train them to think biblically. And that's what I want to do today. I want to use an incantation of sorts. I want to talk about the mystery. I want to talk about the deep magic. I want to talk about the reality behind what we see for, for those of you who already know the Lord Jesus, because I want you to experience the mystery this Christmas. I want you to think about things that you have thought about many other times in a different way. St. Athanasius, that great saint, wrote a book called On the Incarnation. And in, the, in, in this book, he explains the entire Christian faith based on the incarnation of Jesus. It's a short book. It's one of the greatest theological works ever written. By all means, please buy a copy. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, the foreword to it. Uh, It's a very good book on the incarnation. But in that book, he wrote this. For he became a man that we might be made God. And he manifested himself through the body that we might take cognizance of the invisible father. And he underwent insult at the hands of men that we might inherit immortality. Now, I mean, we could just unpack that, right? But this is what I like about quotes like this, is it opens up a little bit of this mystery that we are so familiar with and and gets us to think about it in a slightly different way. And spread throughout this sermon are little quotes like that because it's helpful to understand what we're talking about. Yahweh Elohim, the creator of everything that you see, everything that has ever existed, became a man. Right? The one who doesn't need food ate at his mother's breast. And, and this mystery is at the heart of who we are as God's people. It's at the heart of, what, of creation. It's at the heart of history. It's at the heart of everything we do. 
Now, there is a cooperative project going on. Now, what, what I mean by this is God doesn't need us, but he made us to join him in a, in a process that he's taking the cosmos through. He has a plan, and he wants us to be a part of that plan. He wants us to join him. He doesn't just work upon us, and we're, we're not just clay in his hands, right? We start that way, but he makes useful tools out of the clay that he might operate on the world, that he might operate on the cosmos, that he might operate on other people. We are tools in his hands. We are participating in what's going on. You're you're used to phrases like, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Now, what that tells us is what? Unless the Lord builds it, the people who are actually doing the work, (laughs) it's meaningless. Now, when the work is done, could you say that the laborers were the ones who built it? Of course, man's been doing this since the beginning of time. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. We are God's fellow workers. We are God's building, God's field. That's what St. Paul says. And what does that mean? We are his fellow workers. What does it mean that we are the building being worked on? What does it mean that we're his field? The creation is a supernatural and natural project. Yahweh Elohim birthed a man. That's what he did in Genesis chapter 2. And Mary birthed a God. And everything that occurred between those two uh, births <laughs> is rich with meaning. Is rich with what? God attempting to get man back to himself in order that they might cooperate together. What was read for us today? You're going you're gonna to build me a house and I'll build you a house. And this is, the, this is the Christian life that you're engaged in. Jesus says, go and build my house. And, and while you're doing it, I will build your house. And you're like, well, who's building? We're both building. Well, what are we building? Does God even need a house? Right? Does he need a house? But he wants us to make him a house. He's a very practical God. Right? Because you really just need a place to lay your, right? Even human beings understand. All you really need is a place to lay your head, somewhere to wash your plate, right? The place that you have that you sleep in between work and work doesn't have to be very elaborate. And yet he gives us wives, he gives us families, because he doesn't just want a place for us to lay our head and hang our hat. He wants a home. He wants something more than just a place where we have respite for a few hours. So the Lord, who doesn't need a house, wants a house, and he wants man to build him the house. Now, imagine how much better the house would be if he built it himself, right? If I had $5 million, and I had all the access to whatever I want, I, I, I just built whatever house I wanted. Yeah, man, this is a nice idea. I kind of like this. <laughs> I, I just, can you imagine what I would build my, for myself? You had everything you wanted. And, and what, what I could accomplish, even if I had $50 million, would not even come close to what God would accomplish if he built his own. Because you look, right, you look around this world and, and you see the wondrous things in it and the, and the useless things and the things that just exist for, for what purpose, right? Those fish down at the bottom of the sea with the little light hanging off their head. What is that all about, right? I love it when they find something new and I'm like, God's been delighting in that for 10,000 years and look, he, he finally let us see it, too. And this is what Christmas is about. This is what the Christian life is about. Okay, Jesus came to reestablish the cooperation of God and man, furthering the generations of the heavens and earth toward the full maturity and glory that they were intended to have. That's what the sermon is about. Now, what does that mean? What are the generations of the heavens and earth? Why is it that God is working with us? What is the full maturity and glory to which 
the generations of the heavens and earth are supposed to grow up and, and, and reach. Well, we begin in Genesis chapter 2. Of course, if you want to understand anything in the Bible, always go to Genesis. Genesis is divided into sections. Eleven times throughout the book of Genesis, it says these are the generations of. There's some variation of this sentence 11 times. Chapters 2, 5, 6, 10, 11, 25, 36, and 37. The phrase is a literary device governing the structure of Genesis. This is why Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 opens with the same phrase, because the evangelist is attempting to connect the account of Christ to the Pentateuch, as I've argued in a sermon elsewhere. The phrase introduces the sections of Genesis as the book unfolds about various families, the sons of God, the sons of Satan, the trees of God, the thorns of the earth, attacking the fruitfulness of God's trees. You have all these generations that come along, and sometimes it's talking about the generations of God's children, and sometimes it's talking about the generations of God's enemies, the thorns. The thorns that don't want us to be fruitful and multiply. The thorns who don't want us to beautify this earth. Now, the literary device of the generations of does not continue into Exodus. It doesn't continue into the rest of the Pentateuch. It's very distinct to the book of Genesis. That's why there's so much written about it. It's a really remarkable phrase. And I would like to discuss some of that with you guys, too, in order for you to see this mystery slightly differently. If you you read in Ruth 4.18... The meaning there is very clear. It says, the generations of XYZ are the things that emerged from or were fathered by XYZ. You you have this thing. If you turn to Ruth with me, Ruth 4, verse 18, it says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered, and I'm not going to try to say that last name because I didn't practice. (laughs) Right? The generations of means you're talking about the children of those who preceded it. Okay, this is the generations of Perez. Here are all of Perez's kids. The same meaning is found throughout Genesis. Genesis 5 says, uses it the same way. It says the descendants of Adam are, and then it lists the descendants of Adam. Why am I mentioning all of this? Because if you read chapter 2, verse 4, there's something very plain in the text that we don't really, I think, think about. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. Now, what does that mean? That means everything that that follows descend from who? Perez? No. Adam? No. They descend from whom? The heavens and the earth. Now, right there is the incarnation. Right there, God is like, hey, there hasn't been a fall, right? Man hasn't disobeyed. Man hasn't lost the garden. Man isn't estranged from me. But right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you a story, and the story is about the generations of the heavens and the earth. What proceeded from the heavens and the earth? What, what came from, what was birthed from the union of the heavens and the earth? Man, in some sense, is the offspring of the earth, for man was formed from the dust of the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And so a pile of ground is is made, and heaven breathes life into it. And so what you have now is the generations of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth have brought forth a man. Now, what's interesting in chapter 2, verse 4, is that this is what they're saying God does to the whole world. He births the whole world into being. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were 
begotten, actually, because that word created is not created, it's begotten, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay, now there's, I'm going to do a little Hebraic jujitsu here on you guys. I apologize about that. I will explain. But what we see here is that in the very beginning, we're told the beginning of the story that God has to tell us is the generations of the heavens and earth, the union of the heavens and the earth, the cooperation of the heavens and the earth. Lots of uh, symbolism and typology spring from this. Jeremiah 18.6 says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so were you in my hand, O house of Israel. And there in, in Genesis 2, what, what is man? Man is but clay, right? It says in, in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, the water comes up and sprinkles the earth. Well, what happens when you go and you mix dirt and <laughs> water together? It makes a clay-like substance, correct? And you can make pies out of it. If you have more advanced clay, you can make, you know, urns out of it, you can make vases out of it, you can make all kinds of things out of it. Isaiah 64, 8, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9. He talks about, who are you, O clay pot, to talk back to the maker of the clay pot? Well, all of that reference is a reference to chapter 2, verse 7 in Genesis, where man makes mud, and then he breathes life into it the generations of the heavens and earth. That's what we talk about when we talk about our being clay pots. That's what we talk about as being just mere vessels because we were just a vessel on the ground and God poured his spirit into us and we are now, even if we don't know him, the bearers of his spirit because this is also what it's telling us is everyone who is created, every man, woman, and child bears the spirit of God upon them because they have life. Now there's a different kind of bearing the spirit that comes in Pentecost. Just like, right, if Christ, all things were made in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, they're held together in Christ. In one sense, Christ is in us and we are in Christ, even if we don't believe in him. What we are made aware of as Christians is we are made more aware of the reality, of the mystery, than people who don't believe in God. Oh, you mean I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Yeah, that's how it was even when you were in your mother's womb. But now I'm telling you there's a special covenantal relationship involved in it. I'm aware of you, and you are aware of me, and now we are cooperating, opposed to me just working on a bunch of people who don't know that they're working with me, right? (laughs) All kinds of unbelieving men build a bridge across a lake, and those men have no idea that they've worked with God to build the bridge. But we know, don't we? Everything we build, everything we make, everything we consume, we look at the table full of food, and we say, look at what the Lord and I have done. We know we're cooperating with him. And that's the difference between those who are made in the image of God and are animated by his spirit and are in creation that's held together by Christ and those who are made aware of the mystery. Right? right, Last night, we celebrated 21 years of knowing one another, my wife and I. And there we are. We remember 21 years ago when I sat down next to her at a coffee shop and it was just the two of us and she had a scone and a book and a coffee. and, And I asked her to go out and she said, no, it's a long story. And there we are, 21 years later, sitting around a table full of children, happily married, toasting one another, toasting all of them, and we say, look at, look at what we and the Lord have done. Look at what we've been made a part of. And that's the mystery that Bonhoeffer wants us to see. Look at what we are doing. 
with the help of the Lord. Look at what we are doing on behalf of the Lord. Look at what we are doing because he is here with us and we are working together. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 itself describes creation as the generations of the heavens and the earth, suggesting that they came into being by something like giving birth. The word translated as made, so if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, it's actually down at the end. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I want to point out something very important here about the Hebrew. The word could be made. The word could be beget. They can't actually be either word because Hebrew is, there's, there's a, not very many words and you use them, it, it context matters. So we're used to saying God is the maker of the heavens and earth. It's a very important creedal statement. I'm not trying to say that we go and change the creeds and say that, oh, you know what we should do is insert the word beget, the begetter <laughs> of the heavens and the earth. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a fundamental misunderstanding about this verse and, and the way that we understand it, and, and there's a, another way to understand it that's helpful. I don't think we should lose one for the other. I think we should have both. And here's what I'm talking about. The Bible itself and God himself talks about the beginning as him giving birth to the world. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are the God. You are God. Now, that is the NASB version. That's the New American Standard Bible that I'm translating from because I looked at 17 versions of the Bible, and it was very difficult to find the word used this way. But the NASB uses it consistently this way throughout the entire thing. And I think they're on to something. I think they're on to something. We are used to God being the shaper, God being the creator, God being the molder, and all I want to do is add one more, God the begetter. God birthed the heavens and the earth, and then from them, united them to make man. Okay, all of these statements are statements of analogy, and some of them we're more comfortable with than others. Now, we are used to talking about God, he's a man, right? We talk about him like he's a male, and he's at a workbench, and he's fashioning mountains, and he's making things with his hands, and we think, oh yeah, that's cool. But he is the God, right, who his image is a man and a woman. And so it's perfectly legitimate to talk about these kinds of things, as long as you don't isolate them, and then now all we're going to do is we're going to talk about God, the birthing person. Okay, that's what the world does. That's not what we're going to do. Okay, you can thank my wife for coming up with that, I, that statement. Just <laughs> She's like, are you saying that God is a birthing person? No, no, no. i got to be very careful tomorrow. I told her. Birthing is an image that tells us something about God's relationship with the world, just like when we, we talk about Paul, and Paul talks about the saints that he's converted as, as suckling them. Right? As, as bringing them forth from his labor as if he gave birth to them. Paul talks about them like he's their mother. And God is the mother as, as well as the father of the heavens and the earth. And you can talk about him in either fashion. I would not talk about him only as, as one and not the other. I would talk about it holistically. This is why Trinitarian theology is so important. This is why doctrine, the doctrine of God is so important. We have to have all the metaphors together. But birthing, I think, suggests a wondrous mystery. It's, a stupefi- it's stupefying to me that a fully alive man emerges from the body of its mother, the soil. Right? There's Adam. And how old is he when he's born? He's like five minutes old. But he stands up, he turns his ear to the heavens, he understands everything God says to him. So he appears to be what, like 30 years old? 
right? I read a strong theological argument that he's 33 because that's the age you become a priest. But really, he's five minutes old. But is that any more wondrous than, than a, a woman actually giving birth and here's like a fully formed human being? Right? Why is one... I mean, this is what C.S. Lewis talks about, the miracles. The miracles are, are, are what that Jesus performs are really just a sped-up process of what naturally happens. <coughs> so all God does here is just speeds up the process because a woman is dirt, and the breath of life enters her, and God forms the child in the womb, and she brings forth a, a fully functioning child. <laughs> if you, we don't have to add pieces later. <laughs> I remember one of my... My wife would be pregnant during Christmas. It was like four different times. And nothing brings home the incarnation like that. But I remember asking my clever wife, what did you do today? And she, she's pregnant. She says, well, I made some ears. I mean, I also did the dishes, but I was making ears most of the day. I don't really. It's like all of that process happens in the dark and comes forth into the light. Anyway, I'm not going to. That's next year's Advent sermon. Turn with me to Job 38. See, we don't even have to use the NASB for this. We're going to go to Job. Job 38. We're going to look at how God himself describes the creation of the world. Right? I don't have to go to another translation. This is my point. You can translate these words either as made or begetting. But how does God himself, even in our ESV translation, the context of the words are such that they cannot avoid this. This is how they describe it in verses 8 through 11. God is rebuking Job, and he says to him, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So where were you when I gave birth to the oceans? Where were you when I wrapped them in swaddling clothes? Where were you, like a good mother, I put up the baby gate so that it wouldn't wander off? This is the way God himself talks about his creating the world. So it is not illegitimate. I'm just going very hard on this. Illegitimate in any way, it's not a stretch in any way to talk about the fact that God birthed the heavens and the earth. He, and then he, brought, he, he made a mound he poured forth his spirit into that mound of dirt and he brought forth and beget man. The only sense in which the heavens can have humanity as their offspring is by the breath of God proceeding from God's throne that infused life into the earthly clay of the man's body and the bodies of the animals because that's also how the animals were made. God made dirt, piles. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 19... It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then you go to 19, same chapter. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. So the generations of the heavens and earth, what are they? Man and all the animals. Heaven and earth cooperate in the creation of mankind. Heaven is first and the earth second. God is the divine initiator. He is the one from which all things flow, and the earth is the receiver. There is nothing sexual in this. We're not going to go there. We're humans. It's hard for us to talk about these things without making it so. 
But there's an obvious analogy here to marriage. Awareness of this reality is crudely preserved in human mythology. I'm sure that's what some of you are thinking. I was actually looking up some stories about where gods impregnate some goddess named Earth, and they're actually too gross to even repeat in God's house, and I won't do it. Some of them are quite disgusting. Now, if you've heard of somebody named Joseph Campbell, may he rot in hell for eternity, but he wrote a little book called uh, the, uh, the Man of a Thousand Faces, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he, uh, he was a great, if you want to know as much about mythology as you want, ever could want to know, read his books in that regard. But his conclusion was, because all of these stories are so similar to the stories of the Bible, the Bible is therefore not true. Where C.S. Lewis's argument was the exact opposite. Because all of these stories exist in mythology, right? a god that dies on behalf of people, a god that impregnates the earth, all of these mythologies prove the Bible, actually, because this is how man thinks about the world that he's actually made in. Now, Joseph Campbell, he was a professor, I think, at the University of Southern California. He's had a great effect on on all of us. This is why I dislike him, because his greatest student was a, a, a nobody we like to call George Lucas. And George Lucas is like, why don't I make film versions of these, this ideology? And lo and behold, A New Hope was born. <laughs> right? And if, and if you actually follow it, the other great student, successful student, is uh, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter stories. If you line those up with Star Wars, you're like, wow, that's freakishly similar. But what I'm talking about here is the world in which we're made. All those pagan religions, all those people in darkness understood something about the world that they were made in. And so they would have these stories that try to explain how they understood the world. And the story that is true and right and good and beautiful, the, the, the myth that is actually fact, is that God right, made the heavens and the earth and brought them together and formed man and the animals and sent them forth to do his bidding. And this divine human cooperation is a seam of gold that runs right through the scriptures from beginning to end, and it's for us to go and, man, and, and, and bring it out and make a crown of glory out of it. What we are doing is not just living our lives. What we are doing is not just obeying some impersonal list of rules. Right? What, we're, what we're doing is not living out some vague concept called the gospel, which, which most Christians, I love you all, and myself, we can't even really describe what that means. What we are doing is engaged in a cooperation, right, of the, of the generations of the heavens and the earth. God made this world for his glory, and we are, have been restored to participating in that story, in that plan, in that kingdom that is even now covering the whole world. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 and 9. I planted, Apollos watered, <clears throat> but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, <coughs> sorry, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field, God's building. Now, if you have a Bible, also turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And what you start to do is you start to hear this cooperative project. You find the seam of gold essentially everywhere in the scriptures. So if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 21. 
Paul says to the saints in Corinth, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we, we might become his righteousness. What does that mean? What does that mean? I thought Jesus earned all of his own righteousness when he was alive, when he died, when he rose, when he ascended. What does it mean that we are in him becoming his righteousness? Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So Paul is now, he's a dispenser of the grace of God. Is it all because of him? No, because he's cooperating in something. He's distributing grace, working together with him. That's what we're doing. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So when is this day where we can cooperate with heaven, when we can cooperate with the king, when we can cooperate with Yahweh Elohim and actually help him bring about the plan that he has for this world? Today. Today, we're working with him. We are the ones participating in the grace he's poured out of heaven. Now, what does that say about you ladies folding clothes on Tuesday? Right? When you're, when, later this week, when, when you've got all that garbage and you're trying to figure out whose neighbor's garbage to stick all that Christmas garbage in because your garbage can is full. I don't, does anyone else do that? I, that's why I like to know who's out of town. Because <laughs> I'm a dispenser of grace. But I'm just thinking of real-world situations, right? Later in this week when your sister eats the last cookie, when all of those things that you're going to go through, you're going through them, what you are participating in is the grace of God. His blood covers the sin. His righteousness is our righteousness. We have become his right, right? What we are participating in isn't just everyday life. We are participating in the generations of the heavens and the earth. We are We are watching and working to see his kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. And and what are we told? Unless he does it, it's not going to happen. Does that mean we do nothing? Because this is always the tension in the Christian life. Well, why do I have to evangelize? We're Calvinists. Doesn't he just, right, you know, like ordain people before time began? So, right, when he gives you children to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that actually requires a great deal of dying to yourself and a great deal of work. Now, in, in, now, is it dependent upon us, though? But what happens if we just don't do it? Oh, baby, see? Talk about mystery. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't that eggnog going to taste just a little bit better? The ultimate cooperative act of heaven and earth was the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. The very word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin with the breath of God and the dust of Mary. The definition of Chalcedon is the theological conclusion of an ecumenical council. If you guys have never heard of it, it's one of the creeds. Uh, Actually, most of the CRC churches during Christmas say the definition of Chalcedon as the creed. It's very ancient. It's a very important piece of theological work. The purpose of the council was to delineate the relationship between Christ's humanity and his deity. How do, how do these two natures, are there two natures? If there are two natures, how do they work together? What's going on when Mary gives birth to Jesus? Is, does she just give birth to the flesh part, and then they download the, the divine part from the cloud later? Uh, and then all these things develop. 
all these crazy ways of trying to explain it. Well, yeah, and, and there was one error where the spirit comes and descends upon him and lives all the way until the cross and then heads out and leaves it to the flesh. But people thought it was absurd to claim that Mary within her womb bore the divine nature. It's impossible, they would say. Why do you hate Jesus so much by saying this thing? And so part of what they were working out at this great council was the defense of Mary in order to defend the two natures of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just Christ that they were defending. They were actually defending Mary because the patriarchs, the great patriarchs, thought that we were diminishing her and by diminishing her, diminishing Christ. <laughs> the irony there, talking to a bunch of Protestants about Mary. Talk about diminishing Mary and diminishing Christ. It's like a way of life for us. You'll understand what I mean by that in a second. The definition of Chalcedon states that Jesus was begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. Now, that term God-bearer is very important. It's Theotokos in the Greek. She's called the Theotokos. This becomes now a, a title for her in the 5th century. It's, there's songs written about it, books written about it. She is the Theotokos. That is her glory. She is the God-bearer. She, right, Jesus already existed, the second person of the Trinity, but he came into the world, and that divine nature descended and dwelt in the womb of a woman. And that woman, we don't, it's not a mystery as to who the woman is. We know her name. We know where she's from. We know what she went on and accomplished after. And, and not all that, cr- I would say crap, but I'm at church, that the Roman Catholics say about her. All of that stuff is nonsense. We actually really know who she is. Right? What, what was the pile of dirt that Adam was made out of? What patch of soil would that be? Imagine if we knew. Imagine if we could visit it. Right? But Mary is someone we know who she is. She's the God-bearer. She's the Theo Tokos. She is the one in who the divine nature dwelt, the one from which the human nature was united with the divine. Theotokos is the Greek title for the Virgin Mary, meaning literally birth giver of God. It's often translated as the mother of God by Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, but we Protestants are much more comfortable with the term God-bearer. She is the God-bearer. Now, theologian John Frame, lately of Reformed Theological Seminary on the East Coast, he wrote this about this term, Theotokos. God-bearer is Theotokos, sometimes translated as the mother of God. This phrase is somewhat jarring to Protestants, but it is perfectly orthodox. The Nestorian party thought Mary should be considered the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God. To them, she was the mother of only Jesus' human nature, not his divine nature, but the Council of Chalcedon denied that Jesus' person could be divided up in this way. She was the mother of Jesus, the divine human person, and therefore of both natures. Nestorius, the patriarch of Constantinople, taught that Mary was only the mother of the humanity of Christ, before it was a, uh, a, and therefore it was a, a, appropriate, I apologize, to d- ascribe to her the title of Christokos, Christ-bearer. And then they get into a big fight, <laughs> or rather it's Christokos or Theotokos. Now Nestorius worried that when his opponents called Mary Theotokos, or God-bearer, it implied that Mary had somehow generated the divine substance of the Son. He didn't understand the mystery, and by attempting our dear brother, 
Nestorius sometimes get a, gets a worse rap than he deserves. He's attempting to understand something that's impossible to understand. And he should have given way to the brothers who were saying, no, 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 man, <laughs> that's not it. Okay, good try, but let's all sit down together and talk about this and determine how it actually works. The great Cyril of Alexandria and later the Council of Ephesus condemned Nestorius' position because he would not give it up and affirmed that Mary is in fact the Theotokos. And then they got, got together later and wrote a creed about it. Now, St. Athanasius argued vehemently that, the God, that God created the cosmos through his son, the word of God, and all that is created is created through the Lord Jesus. Therefore, for the word of God to be incarnated, given a full human nature, Jesus takes his flesh from his mother while retaining his eternal nature as God. The fetus in Mary's womb was God. Mary bore God. Mary birthed God just as God had birthed man. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Let's turn there together. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 35. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Explain this mystery to me. I want to understand this mystery, this mystery that eludes all of us, this mystery that we are all yearning to understand. Mary herself was the first one who said, What are you talking about? How are you going to do this? She doesn't say, you can't do this. She says, how are you going to do this? And, and the, she demonstrates in that question the very reason of God's choice, I think. She's like, he can, I get that you can. <laughs> Could you just tell me kind of how? Because the mystery is a little, I, I don't understand it. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Now, I love you, Nestorius, but how I understand it's mysterious, but right there, what do we have? It's the divine and the human nature together in the womb of Mary. And Mary herself is overthrown by the very idea. She, right, she's the, the humble estate of her servant. What is the humble estate of her servant from her song? She's just a pile of dirt. I, right? What's more insignificant than a pile of dirt? If you have kids, you understand they go in the yard and they're so proud of themselves, they made a pile of dirt. And they think it's the greatest thing in the world. And I have to come down off my high horse and go out in the backyard and say, oh, look, this is a magnificent pile of dirt that you've made here. This is a fantastic pile of dirt. What is it called? And then they tell you the name, the history, who lives there, why. And I think this is a pile of dirt. I'm like, I spent way too much on Christmas presents. <laughs> they're dissatisfied with dirt. Well, in, in the first century, what is more insignificant in the culture of, of first century Palestine than a 14-year-old virgin girl? She's not married, right? Nobody ever tells us, right? Do they ever tell us what her dad's name is? She couldn't be more insignificant. She herself, she sees herself, the humble estate of your daughter. She sees that she's nothing but a pile of dirt, and yet the breath of God, which is what the spirit is, pneumos, right? The pneumatology is the study of the spirit, 
The word for breath and the word for spirit are the same. So here you have the breath of heaven descending upon a pile of insignificant dirt and bringing forth the divine God-man. That is the mystery of Christmas. This is the glorious reality to which we have been invited to participate. Athanasius wrote, Now the scope and character of the Holy Scripture, as we have often said, is this. And contains a double account of the Savior, that he was ever God and is the Son, being the Father's word and radiance and wisdom, and that afterwards for us he took flesh of a virgin, Mary bearer of God, and was made man. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is this meeting of the heavens and the earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And before, right? And he's walking around and he is the penultimate version, right? The penultimate example of the heavens and the earth working together to fulfill God's plan. And his entrance into this world first came through the cooperation of heavens, the heavens and the earth and Mary. Now, what do you think Mary wanted to grow up to be? What do you think her plan was? Right? How? <laughs> Imagine you have a plan for life. You're, you're excited. You're, you're picking out wedding dresses. Mom's deciding what we're going to eat at the party because you're now betrothed. Finally, you're going <clears> to <throat> become somebody in culture because you're going to have a husband. <clears throat> and all of that is interrupted by an angel who says, oh, most favored. And you think, no, I'm not feeling very favored. How favored would you feel? But God said, listen, no, I have a plan, and you're now part of that plan. And that is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. I don't know what your plans were. I don't care, right? Because, you know, what's also funny is God knew what your plans were, and he still didn't care. He's like, listen, I have something else for you. You you know what ruins a wedding day? Being pregnant. (laughs) Right? You know what ruins a wedding day is being pregnant. Now, think about that. Because I have attended recently a wedding where the, the couple eloped, and there she was in a wedding dress, and I was like, in December, you're really going to give us this gift? And she's there in a wedding dress. They're, they're doing the ceremony. It's my, my cousin, to, to be honest, and she's like five months pregnant. And I was like, this is probably what Joseph's family was dealing with. And, and, and right? And, and everyone knows what, how this happened, and they're doing the right thing, and they're getting married. It's beautiful. They, they've become Christians. They're now, like, going to church. This is why they got married so fast. This is why they're having this big celebration. But I just thought this is hilarious because nothing would have ruined Joseph's mom's time like having Mary pregnant. And did God, did God care about that? Did he care how, how they looked to everybody else? Did he care what it cost them? Do you know how, well, here we go, ladies. How hard is it to ride on a donkey to another town to get registered for taxes while nine months pregnant? Right? They won't even let women fly on planes now if it gets so late in the pregnancy because it's dangerous, it's not good for them, and nobody wants to deal with that in an airplane. But God was like, you know what, Joseph, put her on a donkey. Because dear sweet Mary, do you think that was her plan? I'm going to be nine months pregnant, and then I'm going to ride on this donkey? And did God care? And, And... This is the mystery of our life. 
We have plans, don't we? Even now in our wisdom, we try to make plans. And how often does God say, all right, I got another plan. And you're like, okay, uh, what's that plan? And then you try, you try to live it out and you try to live faithfully. You're trying to understand this mystery. Well, the mystery is you have been invited into this cooperation between the heavens and the earth, the generations of the heavens and the earth, the creation of the heavens and the earth. It's proceeding, and, and, and the plan for that, that creation is, is a cooperation between the heavens and the earth, and you are aware of it. You are participating in it. And when you sit down around your table, you can say, look at what we and the Lord have done. Isn't it wondrous? Isn't it glorious? You can sit around your Christmas tree tomorrow, and fathers, you can say, look at what the Lord and I have done. And I tell you right now, we live in a Christian community, American Protestant, who doesn't want to talk about that. You want, you're going to say, you're going to say, you and God did this? Yes. Because I wouldn't be here without him. I wouldn't care about these things without him. It's so funny because all, all those years ago, even when I met my wife and I asked her for coffee, she was a Christian, I was not. And so not only are we sitting around with the olive plants around our kitchen table last night, we're laughing about the fact that I'm going to go and preach a sermon tomorrow on Christmas Eve. Do you, th- this isn't what I was planning. Now, you, your spouse, your lack of spouse, your children, how they turned out, how you're worried about how they're going to turn out, how many tr- presents are under the tree or not under the tree, how much money is in the bank or not in the bank, how it's going at work or not going at work, the fact that you may have to work this week and you don't want to, Think of all of those things going on. What is all of that? It's the cooperation of the heavens and the earth. It's God has made you aware now there's something else besides you and your plans that matter more. And you're either engaged in that or you're rebelling against it. You're either doing it willingly and doing it cheerfully and doing it with an understanding that, you know what, as far as I can tell, this is the direction he wants us to go and I'm just going to go carefully, faithfully trying to work this out. And, and, and if you go that way, humbly, right? I mean, Mary's like, I don't know. <laughs> I guess let's roll. John Murray, a 19th century theologian, wrote, the infinite became finite. The eternal and supra, supra-temporal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became the visible. The creator became the created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty infirm. All is summed up in the proposition God became man. And that was always his plan. Unlike you and I, our plans are interrupted and we're invited into something that's better anyway. But his plan was always to do the thing that he didn't, that who would want to do this? If you don't ever have to eat, why would you submit yourself to hunger? If you never have to sleep, why would you submit yourself to the need? Why would you descend from the highest throne in the heavens? Why would you do such a thing? See, for him, the discomfort, the lowliness, the humility, the suffering, the pain, the difficulty was always the plan. And what we need to understand, this mystery, is that he came to reveal to us, that his life is the better life. That it ought to be our plan too. 
that we ought to die to ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him and obey him and serve him and do everything for him because it is the better way. Not caring what people think of us, not caring how we appear to our coworkers and to our family members, risking everything because we have everything in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We have him, and there's nothing that they can do to take that from us. And so isn't everything else worth a risk on something you're not going to (laughs) lose? And that's the mystery of Christmas. That's the beauty of the incarnation. B.B. Warfield, he wrote, The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, on whose mighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. We cannot afford to lose either the God in, in the man or the man in God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the scriptures offer us. And in him we participate in God's plan for the cosmos. Because it is hard. And how, how, how much better is it for us when we know when we're up against it and we have a plan and God's plan is not our plan and it's difficult, how much better is it for us that we can appeal to them and say, listen, you know, your mother knew. Help me to understand, help me to endure this plan that you have that was not my plan. And he would say, I totally understand. Here's some spirit. Here's some life from heaven. You're just dirt. I get it. I get it. Here's more spirit. Here's more of myself. I forgive the sins. I love you. Merry Christmas. Have some eggnog. Eat some chocolate. Remember that I was in this world, right? This material place, I came to save it. And this is the story we're taken up into. This is who we are as the people of God. This is a mystery. It is a mystery. (laughs) The heavens and the earth begetting the world. The heavens and the earth begetting a God-man. It is a mystery. But the mystery has been revealed to us. We understand that it exists. We understand that we're a part of it. And we understand that, and and by doing so, by understanding it and participating in it, this is a beautiful life. This is a life full of wonder. This is a life full of goodness. This is a life full of reasons to celebrate. And so go and celebrate. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for revealing yourself from heaven in him for uniting both the divine and the human in the Lord Jesus, that we might, Lord, return to you, that we might again participate in this glorious plan you have for the cosmos. We thank you and we praise you for making our lowly, insignificant lives a part of this grand and beautiful plan. We thank you for all the wondrous gifts that you've given us, and we pray, Lord, that as we consider all of the gifts, all the graces, all the goodness in this life, that we would think of the one who gave it to us, and the one, Lord, in whom mediates that grace. We thank you and we praise you in his name and amen.